Well, in our series on Old Testament characters, we come to Moses this morning, and I want to take Moses over three Sundays. There's so much in his life to learn about how God deals with people. I wish we had longer than three Sundays, but Pentecost is on the horizon, and we have special plans for celebrating that this year, so three Sundays it is. I can't remember who said it, but I'm sure he's right that Moses spent the first 40 years of his life thinking he was somebody, the next 40 years realizing he was nobody, and the rest of his life finding out what God can do with nobodies. And I dare say that for many of us, our, our picture of Moses comes just as much from Hollywood as it does from the Bible, especially if you're like me and you like watching old films on BBC Two on bank holiday afternoons when your wife is out doing the gardening and you're inside with your feet up. I'm honest, at least. There he is, Charlton Heston, who plays the part of Moses in Cecil B. DeMille's film, The Ten Commandments. He's typically tall, assertive, strong and courageous, the picture of manhood, destined for leadership, a champion of the poor and mistreated. He's called by God to rescue his people from slavery, but that's not actually how the, the story unfolds. In fact, it's very much the opposite. Moses is a hothead who runs at the first sight of danger. And as we'll see next week, even when God confronts him and tells him he's been chosen to lead his people to freedom, he does all he can to try to get out of it. No, in the real story, the real heroes are much less well-known. And Hollywood certainly wouldn't be interested in characterizing them as heroes. We'll come back to that in a little while. Let me give you some background. The sons of Israel, that is Jacob, came to Egypt, as you remember, when Joseph was the prime minister. He was used to save the surrounding countries from one of the greatest famines that the ancient world knew. And in the process, he made the king of Israel, Pharaoh, incredibly rich. As a, the family of a national hero, of course, they were welcomed with open arms. There were 70 of them in all. But that was 200 years before. By now, that generation had died. Their descendants had multiplied. They were becoming a sizable ethnic subgroup in Egypt. And we know, don't we, in our society, in our nation today, how difficult that can be in certain circumstances and certain places. Well... A new pharaoh came to power who knew nothing about Joseph and he acted as tyrants always do because the people of Israel were becoming this sizable ethnic group within Egypt and he was worried about their political and military might. He became paranoid. He began to fear these people who were already totally in his power and he began to oppress them, to put them to hard labor he made them build two new store cities at Pithom and Ramesses. But that didn't quieten them down. They continued to grow, and the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they multiplied, the more paranoid 
Pharaoh became. In Exodus 1, we find them working in bitterness and suffering. So hard labor wasn't the answer, okay? He needed sterner uh, measures. So he summoned the two Hebrew midwives. And as you heard in the reading, they were to kill all the Hebrew boys born to the Hebrew women. He didn't want to soil his hands. He got somebody else to do his dirty work. And notice, he employed people from within the oppressed people. And notice this as well. This jumped out at me when I read this story, very familiar story again. As important as he was, we don't know his name. He's just Pharaoh, the Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. But we do know the names of the two Hebrew midwives. We don't know the name of, a, of the king. In a sense, he's the kind of footnote in history. We do know the names of the two Hebrew midwives. They were Shifra and Puah. They were ordinary, almost certainly untrained women, probably barren, who found a role to play in delivering children from other women. No one would have remarked about them as they went about their daily chores. They were, they were nobodies. But if the story contains a hero, or two heroes, actually more than two heroes, surely these two women deserve the title. All they had was their work, their orders, but the wonder is that they disobeyed. They said no to power. They refused to kill. They must have been terrified. What's going to happen to us? What difference can we make? If we don't do it, somebody else will. Surely we'll suffer the death, death sentence ourselves. Imagine how they felt when they were called into Pharaoh to give account. They came from a poor village. And there they were in the palace, surrounded by opulence, fine stately columns, and almost certainly a throne on which Pharaoh sat high above the people, all designed to overwhelm and impress. But they weren't overwhelmed. In fact, they turned their response into a veiled insult to the Egyptian women. The midwives, verse 19, answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and gave birth and give birth before the midwives arrive. You know, they're not sort of these weaklings. Don't miss the irony here. Here's Pharaoh thinking he's dealing shrewdly with the Israelites, but actually it's the two country bumpkins who are dealing very shrewdly with him. Let me remind you of that quotation which rather unkindly summed up Moses. He spent the first 40 years of his life thinking he was somebody, the next 40 years realizing he was nobody, and the rest of his life finding out what God can do with nobodies. Now, one of the most important lessons we can learn from this story is that God can do wonderful things with people who either think or have been made to think that they are nobodies. In our New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul tells his readers, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. 
Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. To nullify the things that are. Literally, that word means to make them redundant. To say you're not needed anymore. So never ever think that because you're getting on in years or you're disabled or you haven't been to college or university, you're somehow less important or useful to God. Now, of course, we must offer our gifts and talents to be used in his service. One of my heroines is Selina, Countess of Huntingdon. No doubt I've told you about her before. You've heard about her before. She was a peeress of the realm at the time of the evangelical revival, and as a peeress of the realm, she had the right to build and staff places of worship. And they still exist. There's one at Wivelsfield. It's part of the Countess of Huntingdon's connection. Um, in the 18th century, when the Church of England particularly was at a very low ebb, um, theologically and spiritually, and John and Charles Wesley were kind of bursting out of it, and George Whitfield as well, Selina, Countess of Huntingdon, was creating these chapels and staffing them with evangelical ministers. And the bishops came to the king, and they said, shut her up, for goodness sake, shut her up. Tell her to behave herself. And the king, bless him, said, if, if you had half the commitment that the Countess of Huntingdon has, the Church of England would, would be in a much better state than it is today. No, I'm not going to shut her up. Now, she used to love this particular passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 because she used to say she was saved by the letter M. Because in the authorized version it says, Consider your calling, brethren, how that not many mighty after the flesh were called not many of noble birth. Now, if it weren't for the letter M, it would say, not any of noble birth. But she got in, didn't she? Of course she did. So we've got to balance this. Okay, God can do wonderful things with nobodies, but God can do wonderful things with gifted people too. We've got to balance this. If you've got a gift, if you've got a vision, use it for the kingdom. Don't sit on it. Don't waste it. Grenfell of Labrador, great missionary, pioneer, used to say the recognition of a need and the recognition of an ability to meet that need constitutes a call. In other words, if you see something that needs doing in the kingdom of God and you know that God has gifted you to do that, to help solve that problem or achieve that end, that is the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, you, 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 you. So, if you think you're a nobody, you may be just the kind of person God is looking for. And if you think you're a somebody, don't hide behind your gift. Offer it to God. He needs you. He needs us all. And the wonderful thing about the way that God does things is that his methods don't change. 
You might ask, where did these women get the courage to defy Pharaoh? Well, you'll find the answer in verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king told them to do. They let the boys live. They feared God. They knew that God was a God of light and truth and justice who watches over his people. And as they became more and more numerous, God showed that they were right in the fact that he was watching over them. He removed the midwives' barrenness. He gave them uh, families of their own. You can see what God was doing, can't you? He was fulfilling his promise to Abraham that he would become the father of a great nation. Through these two seemingly insignificant women, whose names have been told and retold for close on 4,000 years, who did their job under God in the fear of God. Well, of course, the story doesn't end there. Pharaoh wasn't finished. If the midwives didn't do their, his dirty work, he'd find others who would instead. And again, it was two willing women who defied his edict. The first was Moses' mother. Like any other mother, she wasn't going to sling her child into the Nile to be devoured by crocodiles. She hid him as long as she could, and when that became impossible, she came up with a plan to save his life, even if it meant losing him to somebody else. She noticed that Pharaoh's daughter used to go down to the Nile to bathe, so she placed her daughter, uh, sorry, her baby in a, a, a waterproof basket and floated it near the place where Pharaoh's daughter would come. Now, I don't know. Did Pharaoh's daughter twink what was going on? I think she would have been um, a bit dim if she hadn't. She knew, didn't she, that this was one of the Hebrew babies. And so she decided to defy her father as well. She knew this was a Hebrew baby. She wasn't going to let him die. Miriam, Moses' sister, who was watching, came up and offered to find a wet nurse for the baby, naturally Moses' own mother. And maybe, at least I think, that Pharaoh's daughter realized what was going on. She played along, asking Moses' mother to look after the child until he was old enough to come to the palace. And so it's the women again. It's the women again who were the heroines. It's the women who defied power. It's the women. And in those days, much, much more than in our day, women were rubbished. Well, praise God, that God uses each and every one of us. No one is useless. No one is to be set aside. Absolutely no one. Okay. Let's turn the spotlight very briefly onto Moses himself. He grew up in Pharaoh's court, and it became, uh, sorry, he became something of a hothead. Quick-tempered, probably fairly strong, he'd been trained for leadership, but he was rough around the edges. Now, he was aware of his ethnic origin. He knew he was a Hebrew, and he knew that his people were being mistreated. So one day he went out to find out what was going on, and he saw the vicious cruelty of the taskmasters, and he was overwhelmed with anger. He lashed out to defend a fellow Hebrew, and before he knew it, he committed murder. Quickly covering his tracks, he hid the victim in the sand. 
He thought he'd got away with it, but the very next day he came across two Hebrews fighting and tried to stop them, and his blood must have run cold when he heard one of them say, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking that you could kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses knew that the game was up. There was only one thing to do, get away as far as possible for as long as possible. And so he escaped to Midian out to the Sinai Desert, far enough away to be out of Pharaoh's reach. And there he married Zipporah and had a son called Gershom. And the desert was his home for the next 40 years. That's where the story ends for this week, with the people of Israel still groaning in slavery, crying out to God for rescue, and God hearing them and remembering his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God uses nobodies. He uses somebodies as well, but he uses nobodies most particularly, maybe. Because, you see, somebodies tend to think that what they have achieved is down to their somebodiness. Nobodies know that when something is achieved, it's down, it's down to God's glory. And you see, his methods don't change. They really don't change. Have you noticed how the story of Moses rests on things which are so fragile And when you look at the story of Jesus, the same is true. How did the incarnation take place? Was there a, a, a great big religious council somewhere that met to decide where and when God's son would be born? No. An angel came to a girl who was probably no more than 16 and gave her a choice. When you think about it, that response that Mary made, is perhaps the most crucial human response that has ever been made. I am the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me as you have said. That's incredible. God always seems to be taking enormous risks. In Moses' case, it all depended on two country bumpkin midwives, a mother's plan with a basket of reeds and a last-minute dash for safety in the desert. In Jesus' case, God risked everything on Mary's obedience and Joseph's understanding. There's a lovely story, not factual, of course, but full of truth all the same, which tells of the moment when, after the ascension, Jesus arrived back in heaven. And all the angels were fascinated to know how he'd got on. Tell us about it, they said. And so he told them everything that had happened. And then, when he'd finished, one of them asked, and what plans have you made for the future? I've given it into the hands of 12 ordinary men, he said. And to their shocked silence, he added, I have no other plans. 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul tells his readers, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. He has committed to us 
the message of reconciliation. You know what that means, don't you? It means that you and I haven't only got to believe the gospel and preach it as effectively as we can, we've got to live it day by day, loving, caring, forgiving, no matter how long it takes or how much it costs. You may think that such a task is beyond us because we are ordinary people. How can we be expected to win the world for Christ? Well, it's not our abilities and gifts that matter, really. What really matters is the level of our obedience. Amen.